everyone, and welcome again to Submitted for Your Approval, a Twilight Zone podcast. And with me today, I have a very special guest. I'm joined by a a special guest all the way from over the seas. You're are you, you're in Ireland. I am in Ireland. Oh, I I I didn't guess it right. I knew it right. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, you have a PhD in English uh, from the University College Cork, where you also teach. Is it teach or is it is is would was is teaching the right thing to say? It is. Okay. I I sort of I started off doing um I guess like um a lot of general sort of introduction to English type teaching before I convinced my superiors in the English department to let me do some of my own courses on a lot of science fiction and things which we'll talk about later. But um yeah, it's teaching and a little bit of lecturing as well. So some of the you know scary standing up in front of the podium stuff, but <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's that's the scariest stuff. Uh, and you you you've also taught uh, courses on horror as well in in there, right? I have yeah. a, a lot of horror and science fiction. Um, it's it's kind of interesting because I guess um, what I've done is I've like with the horror, a lot of it is sort of like nineteenth century horror and mm-hmm. a lot of. A lot of things like uh, Poe and Hawthorne and people who are considered, you know, those big sort of canonical 19th century American writers. But what a lot of them were working on were frequently texts that sort of have the seeds of modern science fiction and horror in them. So I was teaching it in that capacity. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Well, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I've been listening to the show throughout, and I've really, really enjoyed it. So it's really nice to be here, and I've never been on a podcast before, so this is a new and exciting experience for me. All right. Woo! Uh, there, I, I need to install a siren in, in the garage for when there's a first-time podcaster on. Uh, but, but I don't have one, so... Uh-huh. Or one of those things <laughs> that, you know, explodes and kind of, you know, shoots, like, sprinkles and balloons yeah. and things that they have when you're, like, the, you know, 1,000th um, shopper somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it. Uh, I should install that, but I think I think the cleanup might be overwhelming after a while. So. I think so, and I think all of, you know, the banners and things would probably be lost on the, on the podcast format as well. <laughs> all right. I, I just have to, like, describe it. It, exactly like, okay the the banner's falling now it's floating to the ground exactly the confetti is gently sprinkling <laughs> uh yeah no it's it's great it's great to have you uh my an, another regular guest uh mr dr steve groner ellerhoff uh dr steve he <laughs> he's actually the one who uh, got me in touch with you initially uh because you actually reviewed uh, his uh, uh book on vonnegut and Bradbury, um, post Jungian psychology, and and so he said, "Hey, she taught a course uh, on with, with Twilight Zone. You should you should get her on the podcast." And so I sent you an email, and you're like, "Oh, this guy, this crazy guy. I guess I'll I'll humor him." And uh, <laughs> I'm like, "Yes, please let me talk about one of my favorite shows ever, please." <laughs> Uh, and I and I was like, ah, oh, cool, ah, oh, cool. I didn't scare her off. Great, cool. Let's <laughs> let's let's get this knocked out. Um. So okay, so this day, this episode, we're going to talk about. First of all, we're recording this on November fourth, and this is an important date because this this episode, The Howling Man, originally aired 
on November 4th, 1960. Ah, so is this the first time you've ever recorded on the actual date that the episode was aired? Yes, it is. Wow. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, date uh, several years in the future, but I mean, the same. On the actual same day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Time travel. We're in the Twilight Zone right now. Crazy. That would be nice. <laughs> Uh yeah, so November fourth, nineteen sixty. Uh, this this episode, The Howling Man, stars John Carradine. He's brother Jerome. Robin Hughes stars as the Howling Man himself, and H. M. Winant stars as David Ellington. Directed by Douglas Hayes, who has directed nine episodes. Uh, he directs actually the next episode, Eye of the Beholder, as well. And this teleplay is actually by Charles Beaumont and not Rod Serling. Uh, and this is one of this is probably one of my favorite Charles Beaumont uh, teleplays. Yeah, Beaumont's written actually a, a, quite a significant number. Was he the second highest number of episodes after Serling? I believe so. Yeah, he, he's written a lot, and he was an interesting guy. I, I think you guys talked about him a little bit in the past. But yeah, I think uh, with with Tiffany. Yeah, he's in, he's quite interesting, and he's written some kind. Of, he's actually written some pretty interesting screenplays, and he's written a lot of a lot of pretty cool stuff. Um, one thing I actually saw was that he wrote the or co-wrote the screenplay to the the Roger Corman film version of the Mask of the Red Death. Have you seen any of those? I have not actually. No. There, Roger Corman did all of these very very strange, almost kind of surreal, brightly colored. Um, adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories mm -hmm. back in the 60s. Um, most of them had Vincent Price in them, and they were just over the top and camp and wonderful. But what I found really interesting is that Beaumont wrote the, or co-wrote the screenplay to uh, Corman's version of Mask of the Red Death, but most of the other um, Poe adaptations that Corman did were written by uh, Richard Matheson, who also wrote a whole load of Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah. So there's... I just thought that was a really interesting kind of point of comparison. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Roger Corman, as a side note, uh, was did he do The Raven with like Peter Lorre and? That's the one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I okay. think that might be that might be a Matheson script. Oh, hot damn! All right. So... That... <laughs> uh, I I've only I I watched that one a long time ago. I just know that like. It started off kind of serious and then just went off in a completely... Yeah, they all sort of go completely mad, but they're, <laughs> kind, they're kind of delightful. But I just thought it was really interesting that kind of two of the key writers for The Twilight Zone were working on, you know, later on, these Poe yeah. adaptations. And I thought it was kind of interesting because there's actually, I think, sort of a big element of Poe in the Twilight Zone, uh, especially, I think, with regard to how it's structured a lot of the time in the atmosphere. Poe had this thing called the philosophy of composition, where he wrote about what he thought made the ideal story. So he said that it should be read in one sitting, so short enough to read in one sitting. It should have a unity of effect, which is kind of like a pervading atmosphere, and everything should build up towards the conclusion so everything should be going towards the kind of the end point of the conclusion and i yeah. thought that actually very aptly describes the structure of most twilight zone episodes that yeah. you know they're very short there's always a pervading atmosphere and everything builds towards the conclusion um at, towards kind of an inevitable twist and everything is leading towards that 
So it's kind of interesting that these two all that these two writers were, you know, both working on adaptations of Poe. When I think that the Twilight Zone has a very similar structure. Yeah, that, that's that's actually really interesting. Uh, do you think the? Uh, we'll get into the episode itself. I think proper here, but um, do you think that when the Twilight Zone went over to the the hour format for you know that that one season, do you think that kind of uh, kind of slowed harmed it in a in a way? I think a little bit. I'm not as big a fan of the hour long ones as I am of the twenty twenty four minute ones. Yeah. I think I think it is that sort of that kind of idea of one sitting or the unity of effect. I think when something is so short, it's so easy to build up an atmosphere and build up a sense of momentum, like everything is mm. moving towards this inevitable conclusion. Yeah. Whereas I think when they got longer, they were more drawn out and they weren't as cohesive in terms of their theme or there, wa- there wasn't quite that sense of momentum or build up, I think. Mm. Um, so I'm not as big a fan of the hour long ones, even though that season had some great episodes. Yeah. I'm not as big a fan of the hour long format. Right, right. I, I, it, it, I think I've said this before, but I, it's, the, it's that whole... Uh, economy of of the time right like okay here we're we're going in we're getting out with a story whereas that the hour long is okay well here's what the story is about now let's pad the time for <laughs> yeah absolutely i think so i think that economy is really important and that's i think it's that economy that creates the kind of the overall atmosphere of the episodes and it creates a sense of build-up and a sense of tension and there's no there's no room for any sort of excess ideas or excess dialogue. It's all like one idea very much distilled into a single episode, which Mm. is why I think those episodes often work so well kind of allegorically because it's just one idea that's teased out over 20 minutes. Whereas when you get to the hour long format, you can start kind of bringing in sort of other ideas and kind of little subplots and sort of, you know, excess things that don't necessarily need to be there. So I think it does harm it a little bit. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, well, uh, speaking of a great short episode, The Howling Man. All yes, right. I like this one a lot. <laughs> All right, so here, here, a synopsis, a little bit of synopsis for those out there. Uh, David Ellington, he is backpacking through the woods in Europe uh, just a few years after World War I, the Great War. Uh, it starts storming, and he finds him outside still. He finds himself still outside backpacking. Uh, but near exhaustion, he comes upon a, a, a hermitage, essentially, uh, run by the Brothers of Truth. Um, so they, they let him inside, but they say, you can't actually stay here. And he hears a howling in the background. Uh, sounds, like, sounds like a wolf, not nearly a man. Uh, and he finds that there act- there's, there's a guy actually locked in, in a room uh, with a staff on the door. Uh, Brother Jerome, the head of the hermitage, he tells Mr. Ellington the story of how he caught uh, this, this, this man. He's not actually a man. He is the devil, according to Brother Jerome. And this, the devil is uh, the cause of World War I. And Brother Jerome found him, caught him, trapped him inside this room. Well, the prisoner, the howling man, he tells Mr. Ellington something completely different, saying, "Hey, Jerome's crazy. He's a he's a crazy, crazy cult guy. Of course, he's he's going to tell you these lies about me." And 
after stealing some keys from one of the other uh, Brothers of Truth, Mr. Ellington lets the Howling Man out of the cell. Uh, he made a mistake because the Howling Man starts walking and before our eyes transforms into the cliched devil. And uh, we find out now, a couple years has passed, World War II has happened, the Korean War has happened, and Ellington has found the Howling Man again and has locked him up in a, in like a hotel closet. And he's telling the story to the maid in the closet saying, look, I know this is crazy. Just, just, he's going to howl. I know he's going to howl, but do not let him out. I'm going to leave for some reason with you here by, by yourself with him. Now she's skeptical, skeptical. And guess what? The last scene is her opening the door. Oh, crazy maid. Uh, so that, that's it. The devil is loose again. And messing with politics so my my first my first question for you miranda is what did you think of this episode i like this episode a lot i'm not sure actually what the consensus is amongst fans of the show about this episode because i it seems like a lot of people like it i know the guy who wrote the the companion um he seems to like it um and a lot of people seem to like it, but then I was sort of looking at lists on the show, and then quite a few people don't. So it seems to be kind of a divisive one, and yeah. I sort of wonder if that's because it's sort of it's a big departure from what people stereotypically think the Twilight Zone is. So many mm-hmm. people, I think, associate it with science fiction, that an episode that is almost entirely i suppose fantasy or horror and very very gothic in its style is very much a departure i think from what people associate with the twilight zone Mm -hmm. i think a lot of other episodes that deal with kind of maybe the supernatural as opposed to science fiction they frequently have maybe a more modern setting um even though i know the the howling man is set in sort of europe during that period between the first and the second world war because it's set in this sort of rural um, middle European country, it seems like it seems quite timeless, really, but it seems almost as though it's a part of the past. So it has an aesthetic that I think is probably closer to something like, say, you know, the old universal horror movies mm-hmm. than what people normally associate with Twilight Zone. So I think it can be. So I'm not sure how other people feel about it, but I really, really like it. Uh, for the most part, I kind of have a bit of an issue with the ending, but I think generally I really like the gothic tone, you know, the crumbling castles, the kind of decaying old world Europe. It's, I guess it's very sort of archetypically gothic, you know, even in terms of kind of like the literary gothic going back to like the 18th century, even in its themes of kind of, you know, decay and, you know, the omnipresence of evil, the, you know, even the kind of, I think even when the Howling Man says to Ellington, you know, he describes Brother Jerome as sort of a lecherous, you know, old fool or something. This idea that these cryptic, you know, supposedly religious orders might actually be something more sinister is very sort of in keeping with the themes of Gothic literature, you know, going all the way back to the 18th and 19th century. And I really like that. I think it has, again, a sort of timeless quality. I think it looks a lot like the old universal horror films, which I really love. So that's something that really, really appeals to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I agree with you know kind of like the if they took all those characters out and then they put a giant monster with bolts in his neck, you'd be like, okay, yeah, exactly. That's the setting of of Frankenstein. Got it. Pretty much, and it has, I think a sense of timelessness that the universal horror films also have. Mm-hmm. I always find that those films kind of feel like they're almost outside of time. If you ever, you know, when you watch them, you kind of notice that a lot of the main characters dress in a sort of very fashionable, like 1930s way, you know, like the way that people would have dressed at the time. Mm-hmm. But then, they, li- you know, everyone lives in these kind of, you know, huge crumbling castles in somewhere in central Europe with, you know, peasants wearing like medieval clothing. So you can never really figure out when they're set and they, and they seem outside of time. And I think there's an element of that in the howling man, you know, the hermitage seems like it's outside of time, even though it's set in the 20th century. And I guess you could see it as, you know, Ellington being a, you know, a figure of the modern world. He's an American. He's of the new world going back to the sort of crumbling, decaying old world represented by, you know, Brother Jerome and the monks with their, you know, crazy beards and sandals and, you know, crumbling castle. Right, right. Like, if it wasn't black and white, this uh, Ellington could have been just like me walking around Europe with with my iPhone, like ah oh, crap, uh, I can't get any reception, and ending up in this this out of out of time hermitage, right? Yeah, but, it's almost like he stumbles back in time or something, yeah. which I really I really like that. Um, like I w- I was looking up the village. It's called is it Schwarzwald? Yes. Something like that. I was looking at. I was looking up the village because I I was kind of curious to see if it was based on a real place or anything, and I may be wrong in this because I I don't speak German. Um, but I looked up Schwarzwald, and I think it's the German term for the Black Forest. Hmm. Uh, I I don't speak German either, but so I I, I thought that so maybe some maybe someone can correct me on that, but I think it has to do with the German term for the Black Forest, which is interesting again because that's you know, where the, the Grimm Brothers fairy tales come out of. Oh, so again, yeah. it's that sort of old sort of, you know, almost fairy tale world that you get, you know, stepping, you know, going to Europe um, from kind of the vantage point of, you know, modern 20th century America. Yeah. There, you know, even though I guess the, you know, the kind of medieval style peasants that you get in like universal horror, even though that's not necessarily accurate, there is kind of, I think, there is this sense that even throughout the 20th century, there were still large parts of Europe that were very much cut off from the modern world. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, it's it's not necessarily entirely fantastical that, you know, someone like Ellington wandering around, um, you know, the middle of Central Europe or wherever he's supposed to be would stumble across this sort of, you know, ancient or kind of old world that's you know that's not entirely fantasy but i still think it's it's really interesting that he is this kind of you know modern figure stepping back into the old world so i like that and just the whole aesthetic of the thing as well like you know the the thunder and lightning as well like (laughs) random bits of thunder and lightning is very universal to emphasize a point right yeah don't do it <laughs> yeah god, god has something to say about this he's not happy but <laughs> it actually it, it actually made me think of um have you seen young frankenstein oh yeah uh-huh. like i kept imagining that somewhere off screen there was someone saying frau blucher or something and you know <laughs> the lightning would <laughs> exactly so it's kind of 
it's very much kind of adorned in the the cliches almost of of the kind of the old universal horror and gothic horror but that's an aesthetic i really really like um and i think it's it's an interesting setting for the twilight zone it's it's very much a departure again from you know what people associate with the show um but i just i really really enjoy that and i think the other thing I really like about this episode is the camera work and the lighting, yep. which I think, like, it's abs- it's absolutely amazing. They they use a lot of kind of tilted shots and Dutch angles, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> which I know people make fun of today um, for its kind of overuse and a lot of things. But at the time, it was quite inventive, and there's a lot of sort of I guess subjective camera work and subjective lighting, yeah. in the sense that the positioning of the camera to create a kind of sense of disorientation or the use of lightning to create a sense or lightning lighting to create a sense of disorientation. It sort of, it very much reflects the protagonist's state of mind. Mm-hmm. So when we first see Ellington, there's this extreme close up of his face and it's kind of tilted and the camera, the camera moves out, but it still kind of moves out on a curve. Yeah. And I think that very much reflects what's going on with him internally and throughout, you know, as he's plunged into this really strange world, the camera sort of continues to reflect that by, you know, being very kind of tilted, kind of off kilter. And yeah. I really like that. It's sort of, I guess it's kind of remnant, reminiscent of like German expressionism where you, you know, have like subjective mental, you know, mindsets projected onto the kind of the physical landscape of the film or the camera work or the lighting. And I like that. I, I think it kind of, again, it creates a kind of a sense of, kind of strangeness or disorientation that I think is really, really effective. You know, there, there's a whole, there's a whole the concept of the unreliable narrator in, in film and in literature, yes. right? You know, there's, there's almost, you could almost reach in there and say that there's an unreli- unreliable cameraman <laughs> in, the, yes. in the sense, you know, it, maybe it's a stretch to say, but there's almost that sense that maybe Ellington is just hallucinating this, this, this whole thing. Right. Exactly. And I think because again, the camera, it starts off on this extreme close up of his face as he's ranting and then Mm. moves to tell this story and then comes back again to the present day. There is a sense that, you know, the whole thing could be a delusion. And I guess that's again, very in keeping with the Gothic where there's that sort of blurring of like dreams and reality and madness and sanity. And, I think that's kind of a recurring theme throughout as well. He, you know, he he keeps saying uh, when he's, you know, haranguing this poor uh, unfortunate chambermaid that, you know, you'll think I'm mad. And then even when he speaks to Brother Jerome and says, you know, um, you know, there's a man here, Jerome kind of suggests that he might be insane and imagining it or his fever has made him delirious. So there's this kind of constant theme of like the blurring of lines between madness and insanity and kind of yeah. almost fear of of insanity. You know, it's uh, just thinking about it now, just the envelope of the story with Ellington starting and then, you know, do, doing the flashback and then coming back at the end uh, to find out the maid. It's very reminiscent of uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yes. Right? Just, oh, absolutely. It, and, and, you know, of, of course, you got the German expressionism there, too, as, as a side. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of Caligari, actually, while I was watching the episode, that circular narrative. Yeah, exactly. Coming, you know, and that, again, this kind of fear of madness, this fear of insanity. And even, I think, within within this main story, excluding the framing device, 
it starts off with him sort of falling down. You know, Sterling says, you know, the prostrate form of uh, Mr. David Ellington. And then once he's released the devil and he does that weird sort of twisting him thing, uh, mm-hmm. he's he's on the ground again. He's prostrate again. So it it comes full circle. And I think that sort of bizarre circular structure is very reminiscent of things like the cabinet of Dr. Calgary and kind of German expressionism and even kind of the, you know, again, kind of gothic fiction, you know, things like Poe and, you know, work like that. So I find that sort of it's a it's a very carefully crafted narrative, I think, in that sense. And I yeah. really like that. Um, one of the one of the thoughts I had while watching the episode uh, this time around was uh whether or not it's you know is, is there a difference between the the devil being a literal entity and and a metaphor yeah i mean i i was kind of thinking quite a bit about the representation of the devil in this episode mm-hmm. uh cuz the devil interestingly enough crops up a lot in the twilight zone again for like a show that people associate with the, with um, science fiction and, you know, aliens and spaceships and kind of strange things like that. The devil shows up quite a lot. And I think this is probably the most literal version of the devil that we get in the show. Yeah. Um, and I, f- I find that kind of interesting um, because it's sort of, I think in contemporary culture, we have a tendency to represent the devil as very sort of human looking um there's a kind of a tendency to kind of go for what we would consider to be more realistic versions of the devil um more sort of human looking more recognizable to us even kind of going back to the escape clause which he did in season one with you know mr catwallader who you know he's kind of an odd guy but you know he looks human he looks like a person um I, I find it kind of interesting that the version of the devil you get in this goes back to i guess kind of older representations of the devil almost um i mean i think as far as i know like prior to about the sixth century there weren't any real artists impressions of the devil Mm -hmm. uh you don't really start getting kind of proper artistic representations of the devil until like um the medieval period and generally then he was kind of depicted as a sort of grotesque imp or kind of half man half beast thing um and that was kind of how it was throughout kind of the medieval period it isn't really until you get to like you know milton and paradise lost and all of that stuff that you get this sort of more human version of the devil but i think the idea of kind of representing him so literally in the twilight zone episode it's interesting um i think it kind of it's sort of harkens back to kind of that more bestial version of the devil that we get um who himself kind of you know arises out of i guess earlier pre-christian deities um like pan for example who was um hermes son and he was considered by the greeks to be the god of sexual desire and he was considered to be both a creative and a destructive force uh but when christians um started to regard sexuality as kind of sinful and wicked um in kind of like the 5th century very much influenced by the writings of people like saint augustine all of this kind of sinful lustful sexuality was displaced onto this kind of bestial kind of goat figure that you know pan represented yeah. and I think that's the kind of archetype that they're drawing on in this episode. You know, he's got the kind of, you know, the cloven hooves and the kind of the goatee and things. And I think this idea of a sort of bestial figure 
uh, or the devil being a bestial figure kind of harkens back to the idea of the devil embodying everything that is sort of repulsive and horrible and vile to us. I think in other episodes where he appears as maybe more human-like, um, he has an appeal. He's kind of he's more charismatic. Um, he's you can identify with him. Whereas when he's this kind of bestial, kind of you know almost goat-like figure, um, he embodies more all. You know, he's more kind of a manifestation of all that's repulsive and kind of horrible and repugnant to us. So I think that very literal version works quite well in that sense. Um, and I think, I don't know, I mean, I think the whole, the whole purpose of the devil as a, as a figure is that he's, he's frequently a response to the problem of evil. You know, where does evil come from? You know, what is the nature of evil? You know, why does evil exist in, a wor- in the world? And as a figure, he's where we sort of displace the, the responsibility for that evil or how we go about explaining that evil. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very much his purpose there in, in that episode. He's, you know, he explains the existence of evil. He explains the existence of war. But at the same time, I think his very literal appearance ties into that because, again, he, you know, his appearance is something grotesque, something monstrous, as are the, you know, as is evil. It, if, if that makes if, sense, it it does. Yeah, like if there's a, a literal a literal embodiment of the devil, then people have a something to actually blame, right? Like yeah, it, it, a concept. You you can say, okay, yeah, the the devil made me do it, but what is the devil? But if you actually if you know what the devil looks like, and I use quotes on that, then you 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 can you can project your anger, you can project your responsibility, your culp- culpability for doing evil things onto that person. Yeah, he, I mean, he's he's a projection of the evil in the world. And I think in this episode, there's no ambiguity about that. There's no, you know, there's no, he, he's not a human looking figure when he transforms. He looks like the devil. There's no ambiguity. There's no room for interpretation. He's, you know, definitively the devil and definitively the embodiment of all of that evil in the world. So I think I think that's I think it works in that sense having that very sort of literal embodiment of of evil and a very literal manifestation of the devil. Yeah, um, you know it's it's easy to say that it wasn't my fault. The devil made me do it. You you know, um, and I just I mean everything goes back to World War II and Hitler, but you know uh, Hitler we can we can blame a lot of evil on on Hitler um and in the things that people did well well it's because i was i was the devil made me do it essentially pretty much there was this huge inf- massive influencing force this almost larger than life figure who was you know demonic in a way that was influencing me that was pushing me towards it so does that absolve me of my of my culpability i mean one of the things that I think is interesting about this episode as well is that when Jerome is talking to Ellington, he says, you know, uh, Ellington says, but in all this time that you've had the devil locked up, there's still evil in the world. You know, there's still famine and disease and people are still killing and robbing. And like, is that, you know, that's still there. 
But Jerome tells him, you know, but that's the the suffering that man was meant to endure. These are the the small scale things um, that, you know, the kind of evil that's within all of us. But the big evil, you know, the, the war and the genocide, that that that's been prevented, that's been locked away by locking the devil away. And I kind of wonder if one of if, you know, one of the things it's doing is sort of differentiating between sort of like mundane evil and evil on like a colossal scale. You know, um, yeah. the kind of the idea that the devil or that within all of us, because we're human and flawed, there is a, a tendency to sin, a tendency to to do wrong. Um, we commit violent acts where, you know, a slave to our negative emotions, to our darker selves. But on the other hand, this bigger evil, things that are almost incomprehensible and can't necessarily be blamed on, you know, human fault, human culpability, um, things like war and genocide and, you know, crimes or, you know, evil actions on a global scale, that this has to come from some other source other than humanity, that we couldn't possibly be responsible for that, that it's almost, that's an evil that's beyond our comprehension. Which I I think is quite interesting. Um, I think like even sort of you know psychologically, um, I know that um, I think frequently the devil sort of embodies our you know maybe our darker aspects or the darker aspects of our society. Um, and in in some ways, it makes me think a little bit of um, Jung, which I guess is kind of going back to some of the stuff that you know Steve talks about a lot. But um, and this idea of the shadow self, you know, the darker self and kind of those elements of the of ourselves that we deem to be evil or unacceptable and we deny them in ourselves. And it's kind of that hidden repressed shadow self. But one of the things that Jung differentiates between is the kind of the personal shadow, the dark side of ourselves as individuals and this sort of bigger impersonal um, shadow the idea of kind of a transpersonal or a pure or radical evil, which, you know, he says is symbolized by the devil and by demons um, and also, you know, collective evil like war and genocide. So even in those terms, he differentiates between individual evil, the individual dark side of ourselves and this sort of massive collective evil. And there seems definitely to be a split in this episode between um that sort of personal individual evil, the kind of individual sins that we commit, um, the kind of, you know, the bad things that are in all of us, our own negative tendencies, um, and these kind of immense, incomprehensible global um, evils, which, you know, in this episode, I guess, are kind of displaced onto the devil. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think that there's... There's a commentary in this episode about a mistrust or, or a skeptical nature of authority. As in, but, kind of a oh, okay. As in, kind of like a skepticism towards towards authority. Yes. Yeah, so, so we we have uh, Brother Jerome. He's an authority figure in the episode. He's he's saying, okay, you have to believe me. This this guy is the devil, and then that authority figure shifts to Ellington later on. As he says, "Look, you have to you have to trust me, made this guy is the <laughs> devil, right?" It's I, I'm not sure this is necessarily brought up too much with regard to this episode, but is there is it is it commenting on an inherent dis, mistrust of authority? 
and I, and I and I think I think of Caligari again with this as far oh, as with the doctor. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, that's a really interesting point, actually, because, yeah, you're absolutely right. There does seem to be this sort of distrust towards authority figures. And what's kind of interesting is that certainly Brother Jerome, I think, coming from, you know, being the leader of a religious order, he sort of he represents kind of not only authority, but an authority that's maybe part of a larger system. In this case, you know, a religious order, even though there's this idea, I think, that they're sort of like divorced from mainstream religion. They're sort of they're a little bit of a of a fringe group. But I think Jerome isn't just an authority figure. He's sort of the the figurehead of a system. So there is definitely a mistrust of his authority and of his kind of, I guess, quite didactic position. I mean, there's, I think there's a sense from, I, I, I kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier on, but I think there's a sense, I think that Ellington very much represents the modern world. You know, he's American coming back to old world Europe. He represents a sort of a skepticism and a rationalism and maybe a more modern way of thinking about things. And he's very much placed in conflict with maybe a more superstitious, a more traditional world order. And, you know, he's, I guess, there's a distrust not only of authority, but of that point of view as well, of that sort of maybe more superstitious point of view or that kind of point of view that maybe values religion and faith more than say rational discourse as he sees it anyway. Yeah. I there, there I mean there's even a, the the part in the episode where where he's about to release the howling man and he sees that the only thing holding the door shut is the staff of truth, right? And yeah. he's like he's like this is all it's holding you in. Why didn't you why don't you just pull it up? And the howling man yeah. says, "We don't have time for this. Just let me out." Yeah. Right? But, like it's kind of weird because he he's very distrustful of brother Jerome. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes to the howling man, he's just like, yeah, this will probably be fine. I'll just I'll let the staff. It'll be OK. Um, he he kind of he sort of he buys into it immediately, which I think is interesting. And I don't know if that kind of ties into sort of, you know, some of these kind of traditional or kind of folkloric ideas of the devil as being wily, you know, as being able to trick people more easily. And maybe that's why he buys into it. But actually, I think what you were saying there about a distrust of authority being really being kind of a prevalent theme there, there's almost an idea that authority is insane or that the system is mad almost because Brother Jerome obviously comes across as, you know, a, a little bit on the crazy side, um, especially that, you know, especially that bit where he, um, you know, he lifts the staff above his head. Let my people go. Pretty much. He's doing, doing his whole Moses bit. But, you know, he's obviously very, very passionate. And a lot of what he says, you know, I think is is quite, you know, rational. You know, he says that his his faith and his appearance are the are simply the product of a different point of view. That's quite rational. But then obviously a lot of his, you know, screaming about the devil and waving the staff around comes across as insane. And then later in the episode, obviously, when Ellington is trying to convince that poor beleaguered chambermaid not to open the door, he clearly comes across as insane as well. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that not only is there a distrust of authority, but authority seems like it it in itself is mad. 
which is kind of terrifying, I guess, the idea that, you know, what's in charge of us, that authority is, is insane. Is, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a scary idea, but I guess it feeds into some of the larger themes around, you know, kind of war as well, you know, kind of the idea that the systems that lead us into war, the systems that create this world are in themselves insane. So I guess it ties into that a little bit as well. Um, o- o- overall, so obviously I have have everybody rate the episode in whatever scale they they choose. So what would you what would you rate this episode? Oh, that is a tough one. I like this episode a lot. I think, and again, you know, there's that you know there's that beautiful gothic aesthetic. I think it has. I think even its decision to use a very literal devil is interesting. I think not just thematically. Um, as I was saying earlier, but also I think people criticize that a little bit, but I think that television was a very different medium when this episode was made. Um, not just in terms of how it addressed themes. Um, I think in how, in terms of how it addressed a lot of issues, it was maybe a little bit less subtle than television these days because it was a new format and that it kind of tied into, you know, kind of the acting style or, you know, the kind of the script style of the time. But I think you also have to remember that like the TVs that people watched back in the 1960s were, you know, those small little black and white things. And, you know, the whole family was clustered around a tiny little black and white TV. So I don't think you could be as subtle visually as you have, as you could be now. I know that I think Beaumont originally just wanted like, as the devil was walking away, a shot of like a cloven hoof from under his cape or something. But I don't think that would have translated well to, you know, the small, grainy, black and white televisions of the 1960s. I think you need uh, something more visually impactful. And that scene where the devil is, where, where the howling man is walking towards the camera and he's transforming into the devil, I think is really, really effective. I mean, even when he when Ellington first lets him out, the light changes and it becomes his face becomes sharper and more menacing. And then as he walks towards the camera, he slowly starts to transform. And that's interesting because in a lot of old horror movies, when a character was transforming, you know, like Lon Chaney in the old Wolfman or, um, you know, Frederick March in the old, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, they stood still, but the devil in this one or the howling man, as he's transforming to the, into the devil, he walks towards the camera and it's really, really dynamic and it's really menacing because he's moving as he's changing. So I think visually it's really, really striking. I think the only thing about this episode that I really have an issue with is probably the ending a little bit. Um, with, I feel with, with her, with her letting the, the, yeah. the and I think it's good because it's, it's circular again, as we were saying, there's that kind of circular narrative, but I think my only kind of issue with that is that it seems like Ellington went to an awful lot of trouble to recapture the devil. And then he's just like, um, okay, so I'm just going to go out and, you know, I don't know, call a taxi or something. And you stay here and just hear you hear that howling in the closet there. Don't open the door. Just trust me on that. Um, I'm not insane. There's someone screaming in my closet, but I'm not insane. Don't open the door. Ear so, do not listen. Yeah, I just, I feel like that's a little bit weak or something. Um, mm. I'm also curious about the little latch that he has on the door. You know, the the tiny little thing. Is that a latch or is it like a mini staff of truth? I think it. it I think he maybe just has like a bunch of mini staffs of truth. Like, that... 
I wonder where he gets them. You know, do the monks have like a little gift shop on the way out or something where you buy miniature staffs and, you know, attach them to a key ring or something and just bring them with you. But I think it, it, it seems a little bit weak in the ending. Like, I know that obviously you're abiding by that 20 minute format and I do love the 20 minute format, but I don't know. It seems sort of like, I don't know, after all that effort to catch the devil, then you're just going to let him with some, you know, you're going to leave him there with some random chambermaid and go off out. You know, it's almost like he, you know, he was like, you know, I'm just going to stand here and close my eyes and don't you, you know, open that cupboard. It just, it seems a little bit unrealistic, not even unrealistic, but it seems a little bit sort of unfaithful to the rest of the episode, considering the struggle to, you know, that Jerome describes in terms of him capturing the devil and then later the the struggle that Ellington describes. It, it seems like, you know, after all of that, you probably wouldn't just, you know, leave the devil alone. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think they're, I mean, we don't see what their initial interaction is, Ellington and the maid's intera- initial reactions are, right? But we know from uh, Ellington's initial conversations with Jerome Jerome was initially just like, I'm not telling you anything. Get out of here. I don't hear anything. La, yeah, la, la, exactly. La. Yeah. Right? So so I I can only I, I can only hypothesize that Ellington learned from from his experience and instead of, you know, trying to hide it, he's like just going at it, just just getting after it right away and saying, Hey look, like I'm just gonna tell you the truth right now. I know I'm gonna sound crazy, but let me tell you this entire story just up being up front with you and obviously that that method doesn't work out either yeah i i sort of wonder if he shouldn't have just maybe hung a you know do not disturb sign on the door and just you know locked it and left when this room's a rocking exactly if if you hear a howling we're just having a really good time in here (laughs) yeah don't open the door honeymoon suite you know what i'm saying exactly that would have been a much better plan but i think (laughs) other than that um, I really like the episode, so I would probably give it like a oh raging scale. I'm going to depart from the numbers and be a bit teachery and be like, I'm going to give it like a B plus. All right. Because All right. I really love the episode. I find that the ending is a little bit phoned in, but other than that, it's visually very strong. It has an amazing sense of atmosphere and tension, and has a wonderfully paced narrative it's you know it and that kind of circular structure where it almost comes back around in itself is great and the camera work and the lighting it's all you know really really striking and really beautiful so uh i'd give it a, a solid b plus yeah awesome uh i'm 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 with you i give it a little bit of extra credit just for a cliche devil i'll, I, but I'll, hey. so I'll, I'll go with a solid i'll go with a solid a okay i'm a pretty tough grader so you know a b plus for me is like you know an a from anyone else all right. Awesome. Awesome. I'll keep that in mind if I'm ever uh, taking one of your courses. Exactly. I'm, I'm really hard to please. So, you know, but I, I do love this one. It is a fun episode. And I watched it over Halloween weekend as well. So, you know, it, it's very fitting. It, it is. A, it is a good Halloween episode. I would say that. Yeah. It, again, I think it goes back to that universal monster feel. It feels it. It, it, it doesn't feel like a Twilight Zone episode in, this, in, in that way. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, and I love that. I love Universal. Um, I love old horror. So it just, it feeds into a lot of stuff I really enjoy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, thank you so much for talking about the episode with me. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it very much. 
Now I have I have a few questions for you. Oh, uh, okay. Go. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not good with uh, uh, interview transitions. It's never uh, never, been, never been my strong suit. That's okay. <laughs> There's no point being subtle. Just go for it. Okay. All right. So now I am interviewing you. <laughs> good. Good. <laughs> so I, I read a post of yours, and it was from 2014. Oh it, yes, the teaching one. Yes, teaching history yeah. and theory through popular culture. So I'm fascinated by by psychology um, and and looking at like history and social norms through the lens of of pop culture. Um, has that always been something you've you've strived for and that like as as a teaching tool? It is. It's very much something. I mean, I love popular culture anyway. Um, you know, I was one of those kids who was always reading and always watching television and movies and things. So I generally love popular culture anyway. And I have a bit of an issue of how academia tends to sort of denigrate popular culture a lot of the time. You know, there's this idea that movies and TV shows and comic books and things like that, that they're not real culture and that they have no value. But I think that because popular culture is often produced quickly um, um, and mass produced, it responds more quickly and more immediately to kind of various social and cultural concerns. Mm-hmm. And as and because of that, and because I value the kinds of storytelling you get in popular culture, I think that, yeah, teaching popular culture has always been something I've been interested in. And I've always been sort of pushing my department to let me teach more courses about, you know, movies and TV shows and genre fiction as well, like horror and science fiction, things that aren't generally taken very seriously. Yeah. Uh, you There's a, a line in there where you say, we litter our curriculums with canonical texts, which to many students seem removed from their own experiences and whose cultural concerns are intimidating and alien to them. I, I think I can kind of see where you're, where you're going with that. So I think, I mean, generally the reason I teach popular culture is because I think a lot of time, a lot of the time, things like, you know, kind of difficult literature, poetry, drama, things like that. It can often be removed from the everyday experiences of students or what they're familiar with which can be difficult for them to, and it can be difficult for them to interact with works like that, which it doesn't make those works bad. It just means that maybe that's not all we should be teaching them. But I do know that obviously the things I'm teaching a lot of the time aren't exactly what students would be familiar with because I'm teaching, you know, a lot of black and white movies. And I teach uh, in my science fiction courses, I teach episodes of The Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. Um, So black and white television with maybe a, a slightly more melodramatic style of acting it's not exactly what they would be used to, but I think it's still in many ways a little bit more accessible because it's still a TV show or it's still a movie or when I teach kind of science fiction sh- short stories, it's still, you know, kind of popular, you know, um, kind of popular, you know, like airport literature almost, you know, the stuff you pick up on kind of a rack somewhere for something to read on the train or on in the airport or something. Um, so it's a little bit more accessible to them that way. And I think also even looking back at TV shows and movies and things, you know, from the 1950s and 60s, they can very clearly identify the seeds of the popular culture that they're watch that they're familiar with now. So if they watch kind of science fiction films from the 50s or TV shows like The Twilight Zone, they can see a lot of kind of character archetypes or plot points or I guess things that have almost become cliches now that were new at the time. So it's kind of it's more identifiable, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do, do you think uh, 
obviously I'm in the in the boat with you that that we can learn these sociological uh, have these sociological conversations stemming from sci-fi, right? Do you think that that understanding, you know, using the popular pop pop culture for for your curriculum, do you think showing them that sci-fi gets them to understand that a little bit more? Does it does it cement those those concepts a little bit uh, stronger? I, guess? I think so, because I think like one of the really great things about using science fiction as a means of, say, addressing kind of cultural or social or even psychological concepts, which I think the Twilight Zone has always done brilliantly, is that not only does it allow the creators of these works to be more controversial. So you can address kind of difficult issues um, through science fiction that you couldn't address directly in a kind of more realistic thing because you have that sort of, you know, you're dressing it up as something else, you know? You're taking yeah. something kind of controversial and you're kind of hiding it almost beneath, you know, kind of the tropes of science fiction or the tropes of horror. But the other thing it does is that I think it provides kind of critical distance it puts kind of a new spin on familiar themes and ideas. So a lot of the time, say, a show like The Twilight Zone will deal with kind of issues like, say, you know, issues that were quite kind of controversial or quite difficult, like, say, race or, you know, kind of, um, as you've talked about before, kind of the trauma of veterans coming home from the Second World War. And these are really difficult issues, and they were quite controversial at the time. But they're also kind of issues that maybe we're quite familiar with now, that we've seen addressed a thousand times um, and frequently in quite realistic shows or realistic books or, you know, kind of in very realistic ways. But by, I think, transplanting these themes or these ideas to a science fiction setting and, you know, exploring them using, you know, aliens or monsters or in this case, you know, the devil, um, it puts a new spin on it and it takes you out of the theme. It allows you to kind of stand back a little bit and approach it in in a new way. So it almost kind of, I think it kind of clarifies an idea a little bit more, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Or it, it provides kind of a sense of critical distance. Um, it allows you to kind of, it defamiliarizes a familiar idea and allows students to think about it in new ways. And I think that makes it kind of a little bit more potent sometimes. Right, right. You, 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 uh, you mentioned in the article uh, about having your students look at the Stepford Wives. Oh, yes. Uh, let's see. So that's one I did a couple of years ago. So I think what we generally did with that was we, we were actually using the book as opposed to the movie. Um, and I was basically using it as a way to get students to think a little bit about gender roles and how gender roles changed after the Second World War. Because, um, you know, you had that thing, obviously, during World War II, where women would go out to work to compensate for the men being away fighting. But then when the war was over, women were very much kind of shuffled back into the home. And exactly, like, gender roles became far more rigid after the war. And you can even see it in how, like, fashion changed, where, like, in the late 40s and early 50s, you get into those, you know, huge skirts and, like, kind of tight, you know, kind of, you know, corsets and things and, you know, like very high collars and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so gender roles became much more rigid during that period. And I kind of explore that using the uh, using the Stepford Wives because it's about, um, eh, I guess I can spoil it. It's, you know, it, it's it's been around since like the, the 1970s, but um, it's basically 
these guys are fed up with their kind of modern wives, liberated women, so they start disposing of them and replacing them with these robots that are, you know, the subservient, ideal, kind of domestic wife. And um, Spoiler. Oh, I know, God. I know. I think there's a statute of limitations and spoilers, though. But um, so basically, I use that as a way of exploring, I guess, kind of reactions to changing gender roles in the post-war period. I mean, obviously, you didn't have men literally going around disposing of their wives and replacing them with robots. But the idea of there being such a visceral reaction to women's liberation and uh, such a visceral desire to return to kind of more traditional gender roles, because it's played out in this very sort of metaphorical way, you know, kind of using the story about robots, it makes it more controversial or not more controversial. It makes it more kind of um, it makes it more obvious or more apparent, you know, Yeah. Um, it kind of it kind of literalizes the idea almost a lot of the time. I think things like science fiction and horror and all of these kind of strange genres, I guess, provide us with new ways of exploring themes and they can kind of sometimes maybe clarify some of the ideas a little bit by giving, by giving writers a way to like embody the ideas or literalize the ideas. Yeah. Um, So you use a twilight zone in, in your curriculum. You've used it before. Um, And, and that's, in the Twilight Zone, I've talked to uh, Tom Elliott, who uh, runs the, the Twilight Zone podcast, a different Twilight Zone podcast. Um, in he's in London, and it's Twilight Zone's not as big over there. It's not. As, as no, here, right? no. Everyone just knows it from like the Treehouse of Horror episodes on The Simpsons. <laughs> yes. You know, like if if you mention something from the Twilight Zone, generally, people certainly of my generation anyway will be like. Uh, wait, do you mean that thing from The Simpsons where, like, Bart turns Homer into a jack-in-the-box? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or or uh, the, the school bus. Exactly, yeah. So that's kind of the point of reference. So people, I think, from over here have been sort of exposed to the Twilight Zone indirectly through uh-huh. references in, I think, generally, like, The Simpsons and Futurama with, you know, the scary door. The scary door. Um, <laughs> Um, so I think, sadly, it's not as much of a cultural phenomenon over here as it is in the U.S. And I'm not sure if it's just because it wasn't aired as much over here. I mean, I've talked to people about this and I've spoken to people who are older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it certainly was, I don't think it was on television over here in the 60s. I think there were some reruns of it maybe in like the, the 80s or the 90s. But it doesn't seem to have been kind of very prevalent or very accessible so it's not it's not as well known and it's not as like i think it's certainly in the u.s the twilight zone is kind of you can you can mention it as like shorthand for something that's very strange or something that's very unusual or you can reference kind of you know the twists from certain episodes and everyone will know what you're talking about whereas over here yeah like people kind of maybe know that it exists and that it's a tv show about weird stuff but Beyond that, I think that's like the extent of it, really. I, I have I have on Google 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 alerts, and so whenever the Twilight Zone is mentioned in the search results, it, it shoots me something. And you, and you're right, it's just kind of it's just shorthand uh, most times for like ah uh, this this pitcher in baseball got a no hitter. Are we in the Twilight Zone? Yeah, like that, exactly. That type of stuff. Um, <laughs> which is is interesting to me. Uh, one th- one thing I think is 
you know, you, you use it as, as a teaching tool. Um, and it's kind of a, a foundation, right? You know, it's, it's inspired so, so many other things. Black Mirror season three just came out. Uh, Charlie Brooker, he freely admits that he was inspired by the, the Twilight Zone, right? Yeah. Do you, do you, do you think, you know, some of these, these show creators coming out saying, Hey, you, you should check this. This is what inspired this thing that you love now. Do you think that will get people to, to check it out more? I hope so. I mean, the the thing is, I mean, we talk about the, the modern era that we live in now is like the golden age of television. You know, you have all these kind of shows from like HBO and Netflix and things that people are kind of lauding as being incredibly complex and they deal with difficult issues and TV isn't just a silly escapist, you know, waste of time anymore. Now we have like good TV. Now but we think- do. But, like, I think that the existence of something like The Twilight Zone has kind of very much shows that television has always been a powerful tool or a powerful medium. It's always been engaging with difficult issues or complex ideas. So I think uh, having creators now say that they were influenced by something like The Twilight Zone, I think... Firstly, I think it helps to underscore, it helps to show for younger people that television has always been a very good medium for storytelling that this isn't just something that came along with HBO, that that's always been a thing, but I'm kind of hoping that it will get more people to kind of go back and look at the show. I mean, you can buy it on, on Amazon, on DVD in the like European region format. So it it is accessible here. So I'm sort of hoping that, you know, maybe that, you know, having, having people, uh, reference it as a point of inspiration will encourage more people to kind of go back and look at it and and check it out because it it influences so many things. I mean, not just kind of obviously things like Black Mirror, which is you know an anthology show as well, but I think even just kind of in terms of like movies and even kind of you know just regular format television, uh, you know modern science fiction television. I think you know you can see its influence everywhere. I, I sort of hope that, you know, maybe that will encourage more people to check it out. It's not on Netflix or anything over here either, so that's kind of unfortunate. You could just get a VPN and then a VPN into the States. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all, all of the good Netflix. Well, well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for talking to me about all this stuff uh, and, and taking the time to, to, to tell us a little bit about your, yourself. Oh, thank you. I, I've enjoyed it, and I've really been enjoying the show so much. I'm I'm a commuter, so my mornings are like... Uh, you know, a good hour of reading or listening to podcasts on the bus. So um, it's it's kept me company on many a, a boring morning journey to work. So I appreciate that very much. No, no problem. I, I sincerely appreciate you more. more if we're going to fight about this. Oh, you know. is this going to be another blush off? <laughs> uh, I I lose. I lose every time. I, I, I do too. I do too. Uh, so oh, no, oh, now we're gonna have a lose off. <laughs> a lose off. Who can be the most self-deprecating? <laughs> uh, all right. Well, well again, thank thank you, ma'am. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. And for those out there who want to get a hold of me, there's a few ways you can do that. I am on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash/s4yapodcast. I'm on Instagram at S4YA underscore podcast. Also Twitter, S4YA underscore podcast. You can hit me up, email, S4YA podcast at gmail.com. You can give me a call, 
G-O-T-Z pod. That is go-T-Z pod. Uh, also, apatheticenthusiasm.com submitted dash for dash your dash approval. And then I am also on, of course, anywhere podcatchers uh, are sold. Well, podcatchers and podcasts. I'm on iTunes, Stitcher, and the like. Head out there, head out to any one of those, and, and uh, let, me, let me know what you think of the show. Uh, until next week, I am Brandon Cruz, and this is submitted for your approval. Mm-hmm.